With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Log Talk Radio. This is KWAD Radio, and we're on live. This is Patty Holtram, and... We're double-checking our media here to make sure that we're up and running and that we can turn off the... There we go. And we're on live with Don, Donald Jocks again. Uh, we're talking about space habitat, and specifically on the moon. And would Don like to explain his uh, his idea here? What we're going to talk about today is the nature and uh, some of the history around the habitats that have been suggested um, for both space and uh, planetary or lunar locations. Now, what we're going to be looking at is, is what is the practicality of some of these things? We're going to talk about, you know, why some are better than others. And also, as as the discussion progresses, we're going to hopefully come up with some really good guidelines and some things that some of many, that many of these habitat designers have not incorporated into their designs. So we're looking at something particularly for at least in in this discussion, a lunar application. I know some of the things that we're going to be talking about is a general discussion of your construction, your costs, application, and its practicality on the moon. Is it doable on the moon, or if so, where are the best locations on the moon to build such habitats? Absolutely. Now, one of the things I'm going to start out with just to kind of address is, is that there is... There are several schools of thought with regards to moving out into space and onto the different celestial bodies such as the moon or Mars or even the asteroids down the road. In all of them, they all have a single common point to be addressed, and that is, is that we must be able to breathe first and foremost. We must have some sort of an atmosphere. The moon is intriguing and and near-Earth orbit is intriguing because it has zero atmosphere to work with. And as we die in a matter of seconds without air, that becomes our first and and foremost priority. The second priority is water. Our bodies are a huge proportion of water, and the chemicals and the other components that make up of our bodies are dependent upon the chemicals, the nutrients, and the solids that we get from our fuel fuel source, which is food. So, so, but first and foremost, that that water being able to digest that food has to happen first. So we need to have a water supply. Third, then comes this this prospect of being being able to have food within hand's reach 
that we can resupply our bodies with their source of energy and strength. Now, once you get past those three primary conditions of any kind of a habitat, then you've got to decide, um, is, is it doable economically? That's, that's where I put the first economic analysis. Can you build a habitat that you can survive in and maintain that habitat over time economically? To do that, go ahead. Just want to let everyone know that you can call in. Uh, that you guys can always you know, comment and, and have questions for Don here. And the guest call in number is 714-242-5145. We're also on chat right on Blog Talk Radio. And, and the website is KWAD. It is, there is right a on Facebook. Uh, area that we can connect to? Yes, it is actually. What's that As like? far as. As far as finding this information to go on Blog Talk, is that what you're asking? No, where they could, if, if they didn't want to do the chat on Blog Talk, could they do the the comment, sure. comments on Facebook as well? You can comment right on uh, on my page, and I'll see it and, and ask them questions for you. And that is facebook.com/pj.holstrand. It says P is in Paul, J is in Jane. Dot Holstrand H U L T S T R A N D. If you want to chat on with me there, I'll see it and I'll give them the question or the comment, uh, as well as just popping the question right into my into my status and asking the question. Okay, so um, that's where you can ask questions as well as you know, if you don't want to go on blog talk. Again, the phone number is seven one four two four two five one four five. Thank you, Patty. We're going to start out by laying some groundwork on some of the resources that I'm using for the discussion today. Um, the very first one that I'm going to mention here is that uh, Popular Science in 2007 produced a article in December where they talked about, the title of the article was The Green Side of the Moon. Scientists design a self-sustaining lunar habitat that would make Al Gore proud. Now, they have a, uh, as part of the article, um, they talk about a lot of what we're going to be talking about today in making a habitat practical. Uh, that link is www.popsci.com, slash, then L-U-N-A-G-A-I-A. This particular article was drawn out of a project called Lunar Gaia. And the idea of creating something that can be self-surviving in a certain way, that can be self-supporting. And we'll talk a little bit about that more in detail as we go on. The second resource that we've got is a very similar article about the Lunar Gaia project uh, at Cosmos, which is www.cosmosmagazine.com slash node, that's N-O-D-E, slash 1646. This particular uh, article was done in October of 07. Now, what I find is kind of interesting as we get into a discussion of habitats is that most of the, the initial design for habitats has changed very little, whether it's a space-based habitat or whether it's a 
planetary or lunar habitat. They all look at the idea of a pressure vessel with uh, workspace as well as with some way to recycle the air, the air, water, and waste that we generate as well as to grow food. In the early years, we looked at habitats such as um, uh, that NASA and other organizations were looking at that were basically what we commonly call tin cans. These were the idea of much like what we see in the International Space Station, of you're looking at basically it looks like a pop can. Uh, it has components in it that recycle the air using technology as opposed to biological uh, alternatives. The biological alternatives <clears throat> tend to be more difficult to maintain in a tin can environment. You have also other things that the tolerances used not only in the manufacture of the tin can itself, but also in the maintenance of the procedures and processes that go on in that habitat are very, can be very time consuming uh, into maintaining them within the tight tolerances that they need to assure continued life and support. One of the first things we're going to talk about when it comes to habitats is the idea of air. Now, I know I need it. <laughs> yeah, and I tend to blow a lot of it, I'm sure. Uh, in a habitat in space, that habitat has to be robust enough to support the pressure that's building up inside, and it's got to hold that pressure inside that habitat away from the vacuum of space. Without some strong structure, you're going to run into problems. We all know that. Most of us, I'm preaching to the choir here. But let's, what I want to address here is, is, is the costs and the ways that we do that. Tin cans are inordinately expensive because they have to be built to size, to design, and then that bulky assembly has to then be shipped up into orbit or all the way to the moon, as they did with the lunar landers, fully intact, fully expanded, with everything ready to roll. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but it's expensive as all get out. Well, yeah, there's a lot of space taken up, and you're... Exactly. You know, getting theirs. I'm reminded of a lot of the travel trailers that we see and have seen over the many years. I mean, we've you've got these great, big, huge, wonderful mobile home, motor homes. You can get in, you drive the darn thing across the country, and it is literally a house on wheels. And it has your microwave, your oven, you've got a shower, you've got water storage. You can have a satellite dish, for crying out loud. Well, I've seen them where they pop out in the side. Exactly. So expandable words, units. Expandable units. Mm -hmm. and, and this is a, a technique. And if we go back a few years to the old travel trailers and camping trailers, there was a style of trailer that's still made today, and it's a pop-up trailer, yeah. where when you're driving down the road, the thing stands about belt high, give or take. Right. You know, And when you get to your destination, you release some latches, you run a crank, and yeah. it lifts the top half of that trailer up so that then you can climb inside and you've got a six-foot standing space. Right. My parents had one of those. And, of course, the sides go out, so that way you have you have your sleeping space as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, in some of the newer ones that are more of a rigid structure, when you crank that thing up to its full height, you don't have the dropouts for the camping things like a typical pop-up tent is. This is actually a physically square-type structure. The challenge is, though, that 
when that thing compresses downward, mm-hmm. everything has to nest together yeah. to work. It's a great idea, but I cannot imagine engineering that to fit as tightly as it must in many cases. And the ability for you to carry any extra gear inside that trailer, next to none, because everything's coming down and meshing together. You'd be surprised how much we can get in that thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so here's here's the challenge. We can either build these these habitat units that can be rigid and expand outward, much like motorhomes today, uh, and, and camper trailers, or we can build them out of something else that it can expand. Mm. We're finding, or at least we're seeing, there is there there is this trend in habitat design towards inflatable. Yeah, particularly with the efforts of Bigelow Aerospace, in that they are developing an awesome thing, patterned after the designs and the technologies that they got from the old Transcap project from NASA. Uh, Bigelow has been talking about their station, which they're projecting sometime in the next couple of two, three years to begin launching, which is awesome. First privately owned space station that gets leased out. And he's got six different countries uh, signing up to participate in using those habitat or that station for research and other and other purposes. You have sure. to give us a, you know, a couple of those links that way uh, I can share those with everyone. Bigelow Aerospace is at, are you ready? Okay. I had it here a second ago. Here we go. That would be www.bigelow, B-I-G-E-L-O-W, aerospace, A-E-R-O-S-P-A-C-E.com. When you get there, the site is is fair, is very nice. They show you uh, they give you a nice background image of what the actual habitat looks fully inflated, and you can you can get an idea in looking at this that when it's deflated before before it actually expands to its full size, you if you look at the two ends of that background image right off of the bat, you can see the approximate circumference. And they actually have a, uh, a video, video playing at the, at the bottom that shows the actual process. As yeah. it goes up, it unfurls its uh, electrical system, and then it begins to inflate. It's almost like a satellite system. Yes, very similar. And as once it inflates, um, you end up with almost twice or even three times the space available in, on the inside than you would in a, in a classic tin can arrangement that NASA has used, for example, for the ISS. There's a lot of good reading here for people who are not familiar with this. Um, and if you go over to, um, on the very first link there with station development, they talk about the history. They also then show uh, in links and information about three of the modules. It's under station development, everyone. Now, Bigelow actually has developed uh, the Genesis 1 and 2, which are roughly the same size. They're prototype modules that have been up since 06 and 07, I believe. And then they've also developed the BA330, which is actually the first uh, larger module, which is full size, that can handle uh, inhabitants. 
up to six on a long-term basis. In addition, they're also um, building another module, which isn't listed here, and I find that interesting. Um, Probably not up to date. Yeah. Uh, that is a Sundancer module. It's the same configuration. However, um, I believe it's a slightly smaller module. Now, the station, as I recall, that they're planning on putting up the next couple of years will be a pair of, um, I'm not sure if I get it right here, I think it's the two Sundancer modules and a BA330 module, the BA330 being the larger module. Mm-hmm. They'll be tying these together with an interim module that will sit between the three of them. I think they have right here. Um, Do they? Progress here, yeah. Okay, that looks fine. Q2 right. for 2011, based on 2011. Yeah, that's old data, though. Well, the construction, let's see. Yeah, there is a graphic of it on their leasing information page where they show, show the three modules together with a couple of um, capsules attached and docked in. But... Bigelow is one option. There's always the tin cans that we look at with the ISS, although those are, because of the expense of sending these up, because of them having to be mission designed, they don't have the flexibility that we look forward to with the other things. Now, let's let's talk for a moment and see. Now, the Bigelow module is built with its uh, life support system built in. Um, they haven't released a lot of details on how this is accomplished, but Bigelow also, in, an, in a prior announcement, I wish I had that handy, but there was an announcement somewhere in the last six months where they talked about, uh, and there was actually an image that showed an in, inflatable habitat having been placed on the surface of the moon as part of an installation there. And it would indeed solve a lot of the problems associated, the, the initial issues with uh, air and and water storage because it does provide a lot of space inside that habitat and you could take a crew of three or four up with a habitat like this drop it on the surface of the moon and use it for a substantial amount of time much longer than the lem gave us in the apollo program i see that they're really connectable so Mm -hmm. um, they're designed a lot like tinker toys (laughs) yeah tinker toys or legos they're they're designed that way just you know fit right in place together and in the same way with the old Tinker Toys, you had connecting pieces that you would put up, and then those would allow you to bring more and more of these together. Right. Um, as we look at the, going back to the Popular Science article, which I'm going to use for the basis of most of the discussion here, um, they talk in this article about six uh, key points to choosing a location on the lunar surface for your habitat and some of the things that you're going to need to have in place. And this is it. This is from the earlier link of www.popsci.com, Luna Gaia. Including that for you guys right now. Um, the first thing they're suggesting, and this is something in, in the book that I've, the pamphlet that I put out a couple of months back where I described 12 steps to a lunar habitat, homestead, and the more detailed book that will be out in the fall that takes that pamphlet and goes into details on how some of the things we can face and solve to get to the moon's homestead. We share a lot of ideas between the six steps to clean lunar living on the Gaia project. 
Number one, they suggest putting your habitat in a crater. And there's some important reasons for this. Well, number one, if you choose a crater up at the lunar poles, either the north or southern, then most of the solar radiation is going to bypass the installation inside that crater being below the surface. And at the lunar poles, most of the solar radiation is going to pass right on by above the rim of the crater, saving a lot of effort, a lot of money, and a lot of time relative to having to put radiation shielding over the, the habitat modules. The next thing that they talk about is placing uh, a collection of mirrors up on the crater rim in order to direct solar radiation down into the crater to strategic points for everything from power generation to lighting to uh, providing solar radiation for the plants and the photosynthesis processes. The third point that they make is to inflate the modules. Mm -hmm. They specifically mention some modules of, made of what's called Vectran or Kevlar uh, and various different similar things. Again, uh, we find in some of the information that Bigelow has put out that these inflatable modules can be made as effective radiation shields or better than the current shielding that's, on, that's mounted on the ISS. They, their site used to have an article that would talk about that. We may have to Google that a little bit later to get one of those references. Once you have inflatable modules on the surface of the moon, now you've got some flexibility. The next thing that you've got to do, and so that gives us, a, 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 gives us the habitat to hold our air in. The next thing you've got to do is provide, of course, recycling for your water and your food. And there is a wonderful... Uh, technology that's been developing over the last uh, decade or so, and that's aquaponics. Now, this project, uh, Lunar Gaia, suggests taking fish and putting them in a tank up there, letting them do their thing, harvesting the fish, but also adding two other things there. Take that water that the fish live in, and if you use that water in your hydroponics, now you've got a way to provide nutrients without the expensive chemical versions of the classic hydroponic nutrients and also without the necessary labor involved in trying to manage the nutrient combinations. The plants will use what they're going to use. What they don't use ends up staying in the water. You add a third property to this, which is algae. The spiron, spironella, I think, is what one was one uh, version of the, the algae they were talking about, to then take up some of the other stuff that the plants will not. <coughs> the biggest thing, this, the largest issue that's going to face everybody is the need to recycle everything. We're going to have to recycle our air. We're going to have to recycle our water. We're going to have to recycle our food. And the challenge that I see in most of these habitat things is, is that, in my mind, they do not go far enough to address the day-to-day -day issues that the teams that go to these various habitats, whether it be the ISS, whether it be the Bigelow private station, or whether it be the moon or Mars or even asteroids, there are serious problems that we need to work out before these habitats can become long-term sites for human habitation. So let's look at a few things 
and compare some of these issues. We've already addressed that economics plays a huge role. In the declining role of NASA in human spaceflight, uh, the shuttle ending, and with the current growth of the private space industry with SpaceX Bigelow, uh, even the suborbital projects of XCOR and Virgin Galactic are all almost, in my mind, building to to a crescendo that we're gonna we hopefully will see in the in the next few years to build a, a fledgling economy that can then turn around and support our expansion into uh, lunar orbit. But the economics are going to have to change even further than they are now. Let's look at this. The ISS modules, almost all of them, cost in the, in, in the hundreds of millions or the billions of dollars to develop. Bigelow Aerospace has shown that they can build a habitat at a small fraction of that cost. And again, this discussion is about the habitats itself, not about launching, not about the transit, but about the habitats that we might have to use there. Tin cans have an inherent problem with them as well. And to a certain degree, so does the inflatable habitat. And that is, is that they are self-contained units. They are a module. And if you want to add more people, you've got to add another module. If we deal with the tin can model, you've got to ship that thing fully assembled, fully sized from the surface of the Earth through low Earth orbit, across the transit to the moon. The expense is huge. If you're dealing with a, an inflatable habitat, you have the benefits that it is inflatable. It's mostly air. You're not going to be carrying quite as much equipment, or then again, maybe you will, just, just taking advantage of the inflatable to give us more volume space to work with when we get there. The economics are far different. Well, we're talking, you, we're talking about economics. Um, are we... Is that going to be based on uh, bringing these resources back to Earth or keeping them there so that way people who live there can benefit from it? Strictly one way. These are one-way one systems. The ISS is a one-way prospect. You, you put modules up at the International Space Station, uh, once they fall out of use, they're going to be sent into Earth orbit or Earth atmosphere to burn up when they're done. Which I got to tell you, that seems like an awful waste. That seems like an awful waste. Sure. Um, but let's 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 look at the habitats, and and I'm going to add a third type of habitat. And that third type of habitat has been proposed every once in a great great while. We see the prospect of either digging under the surface or into the side of a crater, and then sealing up that space that you cut into the ground or into the side of the crater with some wall of some sort with an integral airlock. On the surface, it has a lot to offer. There are um, a couple of different ways that you could use to 
dig either into the surface or into a cave wall, a uh, crater wall, and actually achieve a reasonable amount of penetration fairly quickly. And by quickly, I'm referring to a matter of uh, a few days. Um, there is has been some research that suggests that if we followed the plan of drill and blast, you can generate uh, anywhere from a 30 to a 60 foot long uh, tunnel in the side of a crater, say 15 feet at its base, in about a week, I think, assuming all factors are easily to work with. In other words, you've got air, you've got to, you've got drill beds, you've got explosives. Um, so it's, it, time-wise, it's not that big a deal. And something like that could be done with a, with a relatively small team of between um, four to six people, again, if you had the right tools. What those tools are, that particular research didn't identify. I do know that I watched, that I read up on the old Hoover Dam construction. And that was, that was an interesting read because they did make some surprising progress on that Hoover Dam pro project. In, in a very short amount of time. And so uh, a four or six day uh, cutting a cave into the side of a crater wall made a lot of sense. The issues that we face is, is these guys are going to have to be spacesuited. They're going to have to have a source of additional air. They're going to have to have a source of the explosives. They're going to have to have a source of the drill bits and power. So these are all issues that are going to add to the economic question. If we send robots up to do this kind of thing, I seriously doubt that the robots are going to last long enough in the dusty environment to make it work. It seems to be what everyone else is is uh, recommending robots. Even the Japanese are, are expecting to use robots to uh, to build on the moon for a moon base in 2020. On the surface, we have a lot of things that robots are really, really good at. Um, they can operate a lot slower for much, much longer periods of time. And in doing so, by operating slower over a longer period of time, they can reduce the amount of dust that they're going to likely kick up and have settle on them to cut into their um, equipments, to cut into their bearings and things like this. And so the breakdown rate will be probably a lot slower than it would be if we tried to put people there. The expense of putting people up there is huge. Right, I would think but so. But there's, there's, there's an important difference. The time that it would take people to do something like this with a smaller set of tools is likely to be less than the expense of putting the robots up there. At least that's my supposition. I don't have anything to back that up, but that's my opinion. <laughs> I think people would rather send robots I, to I, do what a man's going to do. I agree. I, I think a lot of people, particularly in the space industry, when you talk to engineers, when you talk to people who have worked at NASA or people who have worked in the space industry, you there is this presumption that robots can do all of this stuff without the cost of sending a human who's going to need food, air, and water, who's going to need a place to sleep that's safe, who's going to need radiation protection. Yeah, plus that, medical plus, processes. Plus any medical processes that they may need. And, of course, if we look at our answer to that program, we find that they pick people who have the least amount of medical risk. So they can go there, and they're, they're not likely to end up with the kinds of things that would require medical attention. Um, missions are designed that way. But the problem that we run into is, is, is using robots 
or even just sending people up to build a habitat in person is a very short-sighted approach in and of itself. If you're going to take the time, if you're going to spend the money to put a habitat on the moon or in space, you might as well design it to last. You might as well design it to be able to recycle your food, air, and water in such a way that it can grow. Well, I would think that, uh, you know, going green on the moon, if you're going to, you know, we're talking about recycling on Earth, you need to do the same thing on the moon. Even more so. Even more so. Because the one beauty that we have here on, on Biosphere 1 Earth is that the atmosphere is large enough that with, uh, was it 6 billion people, I think, was the last number I saw on the Earth's population, and all of the things that we do, both wrong and right, the Earth's atmosphere, this biosphere, can absorb most of those things. When you're in a habitat, you're dealing with between 4 and 10 people, you don't have that kind of flexibility. You don't have the ability for the environment that you live in to absorb your mistakes. So when we look at these habitats, we've got to build habitats first that are going to, one, stand the test of time. Two, they've got to recycle everything. The economics of recycling on Earth are expensive. I think a lot of that... What would be the benefit of, of... Perhaps doing both, having robots, but also having you know the human aspect actually there monitoring and making sure that the robots are on schedule and, and actually working side by side in some cases. There's another benefit that a lot of people don't talk about, and that is, is that if you put them up together, you get the best of both. Yes, you can have the robots out there. They can be drilling your uh, your cave or they can be digging your trough or whatever it is that they're going to be doing. But when they break down, somebody's got to fix them or you've got to have another robot to put in its place. Right. If you send robots alone, right. your, your, your breakdown rate is going to be astounding against the cost of having to send up more robots to replace those that are going to break down because of the dust, because of... Um, batteries wearing out because of all of the different problems that can occur in that kind of environment. So you're going to need a couple of people who are trained to work on these kind of robots and, in order to fix them as they break down. I'm sure. And I don't think that the combined approach would be any more expensive over the long term than trying to maintain a okay. continuous supply of robots that would be capable of surviving long enough to get the whole job done. Also, I would think that you would lose less time because if you have several robots with them and one breaks down, the human could be working on the robot while the other one's the other one is still going. Absolutely. I mean, let's let's say you send up uh, say twenty robots, mm-hmm. and you send up two to four humans. Mm-hmm. Now, you've still got to handle the habitat that they're going to live in. Right. So let's say, for argument's sake, you drop a Bigelow unit up there for them to live in. You've got an airlock built into the unit. There you it's go. inflatable. You've got enough volume. You can bring one robot, one small robot in at a time, mm-hmm. work on it, repair it, 
you know, do what you need to do. And more than likely, with the environment of the dust on the lunar surface, you're going to have to have a uh, staging area outside the habitat where one one individual is going to be outside. He's going to be removing as much possible of the dust. And once he gets it to as clean as possible, then he's going to hand it inside for the guys to work on. Because you're not going to be doing this kind of maintenance in a spacesuit. Not going to happen. It makes me, uh, reminds me of that movie, Moon. Mm-hmm. But I always wondered why they just put one one man on there uh, in this uh, habitat. It seemed awkward. Well, well, do you remember the size of the harvester that they were using? Yeah. That was a big, huge, mm-hmm. dumb robot. It right. did one thing, did it really well. It was big enough that the dust um, wasn't as, as big an issue as it was elsewhere. Exactly, but, you know... His purpose was simply to oversee the operations. If something went wrong, right. he would dive into his big repair truck, dive, drive out to the, the, to the harvester, out what was figure wrong. out what was wrong, fix the problem, and then go back and, to and, the... And the that's what I mean. I, I see that would be a very feasible way to do it. Yes and no. Again, the, the, the trade-offs are substantial. If you send people, you've got to send a habitat. If you have a habitat and you have people in that habitat, you've got to have food, air, and water and a way to produce each. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. So far in our discussion, we're assuming, or at least we've started out with the assumption, which is, again, typical of NASA, typical of the space community, that you're going to be mining, and that's going to be the first thing you're going to do when you get there. Well, but here are some problems with that. Yeah. If you're going to try and do mining, on the surface of the moon, whether it be robotically or whether it be with humans or some combination thereof. You have a severe problem in being able to lift all of the heavy equipment that's going to be necessary to accomplish that kind of mining. You've got to have an industrial infrastructure, and by industrial infrastructure I'm talking about a machine shop. You're going to have to have power for welding tools uh, and repair and metallurgical um, tools and things from a, from a machine shop to be able to manage creating spare parts, repairing the things, and all those type of things, plus the technical expertise to be dealing with the intricacies of the digital devices that are going to be running these larger robots. So there's a large infrastructure that's going to have to be in place, and getting that infrastructure to the surface of the moon, or much less, getting it to low Earth orbit, is going to be exceedingly challenging, much less being able to fund that. And funding then comes around to something that, that I have wondered for several years now, and in the, in the book I talk about a different way to approach the whole process. In our second hour, we're going to go into what I talk about in the book and my suggestions for handling the habitats, the funding and financing and things like this, and how... Um, why it should be a different approach. But let's continue on this line and look at some of the issues that we face and how we might solve some of those issues. Some of those issues. We know that right now, when it comes to a habitat, that there's a certain volume that has to be present for a single human person to survive. Now, that's roughly used as a mark of roughly 20 meters squared. 
and that represents a square footage, which I think, if I'm doing my math right, of uh, 20 meters squared, it would be 400 meters. And that translated to feet, for those of us like me who are metrically challenged, um, is roughly 1,200 square feet of floor space is necessary in order to grow enough food process and that that's that's been said just to grow the food that doesn't include the recycling processes and so um this again becomes a real issue um most of the iss habitat modules are nowhere near 1200 square feet of growing space if you look at the inside of these cylinders they're between 15 and, and, and I think they're around, I want to say about 15 feet in diameter. So you could calculate the inside of that, but then you've got layers upon layers of both insulation, the wiring, the plumbing, all stuff that goes in. So the actual usable space inside is much, much, much smaller. Mm. And so these are all issues and, you know, the, the thing that a lot of people don't understand is is that the size of these tin can modules are constrained by the rockets that we have available to lift them up, not only just in physical diameters, but also in the weight of the units that are being sent up. So these are all issues, again, that go towards habitats. But if we look a little different. Bigelow has worked out some compromises here that allow us to send up habitats or to deliver habitats that make a whole lot more sense. If you start with something where your core provides the physical rigid infrastructure to store and carry most of the heavy stuff, say your tools, your computers, your air canisters and water canisters would be stored in this central piece. You can then, with the deflated size of this, top it on top of one of our rockets. So we can see that initially the inflatable habitats have some pretty good advantages over the tin cans. The inflatables are also designed um, to join together whereas the tin cans have to be designed from the get-go to connect to a specific other unit, or at least that's been the design pattern to date. So the tin cans have all these things. Now, here's another thought. How are you going to land one of these tin cans on the moon? Well, I know it said something about a hopper. Yeah, but that's a different choice, different purpose. <laughs> the hopper, and in fact, the Google Lunar X Prize, talks about a lot of uh, smaller ships that are designed as hoppers for the surface of the moon in order to land equipment on the moon and lift off with that equipment. None of these would be big enough to drop a habitat on the surface of the moon, or on Mars for that matter. That would have to be a separate thing. But in habitats, you've got to have a way not only to get that habitat onto the surface of the moon, but then you've got to have a way to get it into the right orientation or the right position to be able to use it. One of the downsides to a Bigelow habitat is if you look at that image on the first page of the Bigelow yeah. um, website and you look at that habitat, 
the very first thing that strikes you is where's the door? <laughs> well, first thing is I'm looking at it like a log, you know. Uh huh. Says so how in the world do people fit in that thing? Yeah. But well, you have to understand that things got a the, the the cylinder portion of that at the center is is a good 13 to 15 feet in diameter. So you've got lots of room to get a person with a spacesuit through there. It's just hard to tell that. It is. There's no sense of scale on this uh, on this image. But one of the things that we have to look at is is if you laid this thing on its end, landed it on the moon on its end you'd have to climb all the way to the other end in order to climb into it. If you laid it on its side, you've still got to have a ladder to get up to one end in order to get into the airlock. So you're saying there's only really only one one way to get in and out of this thing? Yeah, through the ends. Well, That's ends where your airlocks. Uh, depending on the design of the unit, it can be one or it could be both ends. If they've got a rocket mounted on, on the other end, as you see in the, the uh, video there, they show a rocket mounted to one end of that to get it up and into orbital position. Yeah, that, and then that, you see the docking collar yeah. as the module comes up to the other end. That would, that would never make it in, in construction uh, regulations through the city. <laughs> no. There's no emergency exit. There's no emergency exit. And there's only one way to get it out. They would never allow that. Um, I saw some images of uh, artist's impressions of what a Bigelow module on surface of the moon might be, and they have them set on their sides, which could be interesting because you, you face several issues right off the bat in doing that. I mean, it would be a simple matter to land a Bigelow module vertically on the surface of the moon, and then before you inflate it, have a pair of arms maybe that come out, latch onto the surface, and then they just let the weight of whatever's inside lay that cylinder down slowly, um, and then you could have the the habitat inflate once it's on its side. But you still run into the issue of how do you get it into the right orientation. Uh, most of that would probably be done through the landing process and so forth to get it oriented correctly. Um, but now you have the issue of how you're going to get in and out of the habitat once it's on its side. You've got a good 7 to 10 feet that you've got to climb up. So that means you're going to have to add a ladder and all the other things to go with it. So you have some, some issues that, that I'm not sure people have considered in these things other than to have a platform that they're going to build or ship or something that they're going to put up there with it. Well, I think it's curious that, you know, it wasn't until a few years ago that I, I even knew Bicklow was up there. And these very interesting, intriguing uh, habitats that he's been building, uh, he's called it a hotel in, the, in space. So why haven't we heard about this before now? This is crazy. In the early year, um, when when Bigelow was first getting going and, and he was just starting to get publicity, they talked about one of his goals was to have a hotel in space. Uh, since that time, uh, the technology has matured, the approach to the technology has matured, uh, and also the marketing associated with that has matured. The thing that we have to remember is that the bulk of the space market is about research or communications. Very few of the satellites that are up there are up there for reasons other than gathering information or doing research. And so that's what we have to remember, that the, the bulk of the space economy is about either research. Mm -hmm. 
Or what? What else did I say? I thought I said two things. I guess it's all research, literally. Research and communication, that was the other thing. Research and communication. So you've got private enterprise putting up communication satellites, well, and you've got governments putting well, up research satellites. Government. Well, it's not just research. I mean, you know, we've known mm-hmm. for a long time that they're, that they're watching everybody. Well, that's research. Mm-hmm. Collecting information is research. Yeah, Even I if it is the government spying on us, yeah, it's still research. Communication, yeah. if you want to call okay. it. Stretchy imagination dedication. <laughs> I am not wearing a tinfoil hat, so don't go there. Um, so, but as we talk, as we look at these habitats, though, each none of them is perfect, and that's the challenge that we face. And even if we we look at that, the, the third option that I mentioned earlier of either digging in or blasting into something like this, that also has a lot of issues that you've got to face. But one of the things that I love to do, and then to go back to what you talked about with Tinker Toys earlier, is the idea of mixing and matching. And this is one of the things that NASA doesn't have a history of doing. They design a project to do a very specific thing along a single track, and once they get so far into this, now they're committed, and whatever funds are budgeted for this ends up in overruns and 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 problems, and they have to refinance, and all this kind of good stuff that just makes yeah, it a mess. They also don't seem to be into recycling, even though the government and as a whole... NASA and recycling in the same breath? I, Bite your tongue! <laughs> I don't think NASA knows what recycling is. Well, that's, that's the thing. You know, here they've been throwing away big pieces that they possibly use well, for something else. Okay, in their defense, if you're in the, in, in the ISS, you don't have room to store anything, at least not inside. Although, they could be tying stuff onto the outside of the space station. Of course, that could get kind of dicey. No. Yeah, I, I mean, we've had, we've had over, I mean, let's see, 30 years of the space shuttle program, 135 flights, and I believe there have been at least one and possibly two progress supply flights for every shuttle flight. I mean, there's been a lot of them. So we're looking at probably between twice and three times the number of flights up there. And every flight that goes up on another ship, whether it be ATV from Europe or whether it be the Soyuz from the Russians, every one of those ships that goes up, mm-hmm. unless it's carrying an astronaut, does not come home. It's that's filled a, with trash. That's an awful lot of debris. That's an awful lot of debris. And if you think about at least a minimum of 130 to 150 of those ships went up that didn't come back, um, where did they go? They were blown into the atmosphere. Yeah. So, uh, and and ultimately burned up in the atmosphere. And, of course, they were filled up with trash components. Uh-huh. And, you know, we often think, we understand that they're throwing the trash out. So there's... There's the and in the early years of the ISS, you had not just trash such as paper and and stuff that no longer worked, a or a lot of metal, a lot of electronic components that were that were just old and no longer going to be used. They got them out of the way, put them into these capsules, and away they went. Um, but additionally, we have to remember that um, a lot of them, a lot of this equipment. There was no room to store it up there, so they had to do something with it. So they throw it into the, into the capsules and disconnect it from the ISS, and off it goes into the atmosphere to burn up. 
But one of the things that I think that is intriguing to consider is that if you had a habitat on the surface of the moon, If you had a small, even the ion engines that they've been talking about recently in the news, uh, I think it's called Vasimir, or even the the engine that they used for that satellite that, that went out to the outer solar system, plug one of those onto one of these things and shoot it over to the moon and turn the moon almost into a landfill, so to speak. But if you had a group of people on the surface of the moon how much of that equipment could they recycle? Well, that's a good question, including mm-hmm. some of the stuff they still have on the moon that they could be recycling. Well, some of that you're going to have a lot of people say, no, that's historical stuff. You don't want to mess with it. Right, because they're never going to bring it here. <laughs> it's nobody historical see it. stuff if yeah. it's sitting on the moon doing nothing. Yeah. They have declared one or more of the Apollo sites as historical sites. Okay. Well, that, that gets into the whole issue of, of not... Uh, How are they going claiming to any any spaces, any particular country, and yet they include that one that, that location as historical. Oh, well, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way. It's kind of going against uh, what they've been issuing all this time. With the time. With the Outer Space Treaty of 67, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, let's take a break here. We've talked about general stuff. The economics of these things are huge. We're talking... Uh, for the tin can systems put up usually by NASA or uh, ESA or the Russians, each one of those was, was billions of dollars to develop, to get launched, and to get into position. We talk about Bigelow's units. He's put two up so far, both of them prototypes, smaller than normal, so we haven't seen a full-size unit from Bigelow. But the initial indications are that we're looking at millions of dollars as opposed to billions for its development, manufacture, and launch. So we've got those, and then there's the other idea of sending a couple of people up, a handful of people up with the tools to dig into the surface of the moon and see what they can come up with and give them simply resources to be able to seal it when they get there. The catch to that is having the resources to survive long enough to build your habitat. I totally agree, totally agree. We're going to take uh, about a minute and a half here. We'll go on break and we'll come back again. The guest call-in number is 714-242-5145. We're also on chat, and we're also on chat on the on Facebook, or you can type in some questions uh, right on Facebook. Don, in the meantime, will double-check his, uh, maybe his space groups on Facebook, see if anybody's commenting, and we will be right back. This is KWAD Radio and Patty Holstrand live with Donald Jocks.
is Patty Holstrand and KWAD Radio, and we are live today talking to Donald Jocks about home setting space in the habitat. And specifically, we'd be talking about, again, uh, this week on Home Setting Space Project. Uh, his book is available. It's about to everyone know. It's also on Kindle right now, and it will be also available on um on all the other locations that you can possibly buy your ebook uh within a week. So, uh Kindle, I'm going to add this uh location, but you can also find all this information right on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash PJ that's uh, that's Paul Jane dot Holtran H U L T S T R A N D you can scroll down to find his information. He's also got a brand new book out that's fiction. I'm going to do a little plug to his because that's my job. Uh, the little plug for him is The Handyman Oak Earth is a fiction book uh, based on romantic suspense. And it's uh, the book that I've been waiting around for four years to get my hands on. And... It's well worth it. It's, it's become uh, an even better book because he's waited and actually uh, done a little more with it than expected. So The Handyman Ogre is also now available on Kindle, and that's right on my Facebook page. Uh, if you scroll down a ways, you can also find the Home Setting Project, 12 Steps to a Permanent Lunar Settlement. is also available on Kindle right now. And it's also available in paper format, right on the Amazon.com. Or you can go straight to the publisher's website, which I highly suggest, in azpublishingservices.com. That's A-Z, like in Arizona, publishingservices.com. You don't even have to go on Amazon. You can go straight on the publisher's website. Click on, uh, if you want to buy a Kindle, you click on the Kindle version and it'll go straight to uh, the Amazon site to get that. Or you can do, if you want a PDF version, I sell it cheap, 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 right on the website. So you will get it within, as soon as you pay for it, then I send, I email it personally to you uh, right onto your email. So there's a lot of options for that. Uh, the... Uh, right on AZ Publishing Services is on the bookstore. So you go AZ Publishing Services slash and then bookstore.php. You scroll down. Uh, Don's new brand new handyman book is also in there. And I need to include the Kindle file there. Or the right underneath that is the Home Sending Project book, 12 Steps to the Permanent Lunar Settlement. That's also available there. Uh, if you want a PDF ebook that's sold only a dollar, only a dollar fifty nine. It's a thirty six page, uh, solid information on his view on uh, how to actually uh, support a permanent lunar settlement and twelve steps to get up there. So it's really solid little, little booklet to read and then uh, goes right into his bigger book that he's working on and. Uh, in the process of it's just two or three times bigger than one than than smaller book is right now, and we will see that very soon. He also has a couple other fiction books, just to let you know. 
ancestors. And that's also on the on the uh, publisher website. Uh, you get various places, so you can go right there and check it out. And of course, you've got Moonstone, which Ancestors happens to be a it's a fiction story. It's a historical uh, historical fiction where Moonstone is a coming of age fantasy story. So he really likes to cross his genres quite a bit, not only in fiction but also in nonfiction. Uh, so that's with that we're going to talk about we're gonna he has a general discussion on the construction costs application and its practicality on the moon for the for the uh, habitat is it doable on the moon and if so where are the best locations on the moon to build such habitats so without no further ado Don would you like to discuss with us um, I did say that we need to talk a little more about the best locations because I have found a, a few places that people are talking about. The moon offers a lot to us, um, but I think of all of the things that the moon offers to us is the single greatest value is that of a stepping stone to Mars and to the outer solar system. Anything that tries to do a whole lot more in a hurry is going to end up in failure, uh, or at least at best, in in a much less uh, capable return on the investment. And here's why: the efforts that I have seen in the media have all pointed, uh, almost all of them pointed, to placing the habitat choice on the real estate, usually on the near side of the moon usually out in the open, and almost always on the side of some mountaintop that might get 100% of its uh, 100% exposure to the sun's light. The problem that I see with this is, is that historically, when you place a campsite out in the middle of the open space, you're asking for trouble. It's like putting a great, big, huge, red, white, and black target on your campsite. Well, see, that doesn't depend on whether or not there's uh, indigenous uh, animals or or insects on the moon that is actually going to come and, and eat up your area, or you. Well, here's... here's Wouldn't the, that be a horror story? Yeah. Um, here's Here's the first thing. The near surface of the moon, if you're looking at the general, any of the Mara areas, or even the mountainside rim areas of of one of the larger craters, the very first issue that you face is radiation. You have got to create some sort of huge radiation shield in that desert wasteland to cover your habitat, or habitats plural. The, The necessary infrastructure to complete such the cons- that kind of level of construction is going to be huge, on the order of perhaps uh, years, maybe even a decade, to get enough coverage of the whole system and the in- installation of the habitats before you can even start any real work. And that's the biggest problem that I see. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
once you get past that cost, then you can actually start doing some work. And even then, you've, you've still got the issues of uh, hot and cold. You've got the um, absolute high temperatures in, in, I think it's 250 degrees Celsius, plus or minus. When the sun's shining, it's hugely hot. Might as well be in a furnace. Yeah. And uh, when the, the sun's not shining... Two weeks out of the, the the month, you're looking at temperatures on the order of being living in a freezer. And we're not talking an Eskimo freezer; we're talking a freezer freezer. What kind of freezer is that? <laughs> the kind of freezer really, that Eskimos avoid. Really, Eskimos know better than to live in a place cold. like that. Just... <laughs> we're talking, you know, ice queen place. <laughs> You know, the North Pole is, is, no is a summer vacation clothes, compared. What kind of clothes do you have on? It's not going to do you any good. It's kind of, kind of cold, huh? Exactly. You know, there's just... It's just there's only so much clothes you can take off. Well, I don't know, on the lunar surface, you ain't taking nothing off if you're outside. So you're pretty much... <laughs> um, and and, and these, these, these things just don't make economic sense. Now... So what 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 is my alternative? Okay, the alternative is let's choose a location where we only have to solve one of two problems. Instead of having to try to build an, a habitat that can handle temperature extremes of both heat and cold, let's build one habitat that simply addresses one of those problems. Mm-hmm. Let's place that habitat in a location, first of all, that is either dark or light, but not both. Secondly, let's drop this thing into a location that doesn't get all that radiation to begin with. Yeah, that's a good idea. So let's put it inside a crater instead of outside. Let's avoid it altogether. Let's avoid it altogether. Why build something you don't have to build in the first place? Sure. So let's drop let's drop our habitat down inside a crater number one. Okay. I remember having a conversation not too long ago about the idea of landing a ship down inside a crater being problematic. Well... Yeah, I suppose if your crater's only, you know, a few hundred feet wide, that could be a real problem. A lot of the craters in in the uh, northern and southern polar areas are huge. We're talking things a mile wide. Oh, yeah. I seriously doubt we've got an astronaut that would have any problem landing a ship in that. Well, I would hope they'd be able to get... <laughs> I mean, if you can't land on a target that's a mile wide and get close to the center, I mean, you got a real problem right. there. Right, you should have stayed on Earth. should have stayed on Earth. All right. So, you know, the, the argument that, that trying to land inside a crater is, is a serious problem, yes. I don't think so. I could say something I mean, crude to that, but I won't. Well, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 girl, we know. So so let's, let's, let's pick a location, and we're going to suggest a location... Um, and I'm going to choose the Southern Pole, and only because I know more about it okay. in in the sense. But now let's let's be honest here. Uh, I am not a rocket scientist. <laughs> I don't know that I would make a good rocket scientist. I change my mind far too often, especially for the crowd up in Washington. Um, but let's let's pick on the Southern Pole. We know that we can place in several craters down there uh, that there is permanently shadowed areas that. Uh, presumably, according to the data that we've been seeing, contain a lot, uh, potentially a great deal of water ice. And this is another thing. In order to collect water ice out in the near-Earth side of the moon, 
we're going to have to travel huge distances to get to it, or at least substantial distances in order to harvest enough of that water ice, even if it is close. So again, there's a third reason to, to go towards the polar areas and look at something where we simply avoid some of the problems from being in the open space out in the middle of the desert. So at the lunar poles, there's a crater that I, I have a favorite crater, and, and, and this crater is a favorite of mine. I'm not sure everybody's got a favorite crater. Right. No, no, be nice. <laughs> Let's not go there. <laughs> so what is your favorite crater? My favorite crater actually is is uh, Amundsen Crater. Oh, yeah. The interesting thing about Amundsen Crater is is that some estimates put its depth at almost seven miles. They put its width at very near that distance, um, which makes it a great big, huge target. Amundsen Crater has an entire uh, wall that is almost always permanently shadowed, which makes it a very good target for the collection of water ice materials, as well as other as potentially other volatiles that we may not know about yet. But more to the point, I wouldn't suggest trying to land inside Amundsen Crater itself. There's actually a shelf crater just above and to the, well, let's see. Uh, I say above. But to one side of Amundsen Crater, uh, there is a angled section of the wall of that crater. And at the top of that angled section, there there's a, a collection of smaller craters that are probably less than or closer to a mile in depth as opposed to the depth of Amundsen Crater. And there's a sufficient shelf there with another permanently shadowed wall space. And alongside of that, interestingly enough, there's another deeper crater, probably about a mile in diameter, and probably a lot, actually a lot less than a mile in diameter. But if we chose a landing site, something like this, it's not the deep Amundsen Crater, deep, wide, and open. It's not being up on the mountainside that would get us up in this solar wind that's going to have this huge block of radiation that we're going to have to bury our habitats underneath regolith in order to survive. So that gets us a place that is reasonably easily accessible. It gets us a place where we reduce the impact of solar radiation. It gets us to a place where we don't have to pay for a lot of extra shielding a lot of extra infrastructure to prepare that shielding. And so we tend to, by, by looking at this kind of a choice, we save a lot of upfront money. Oh, that's good. The habitat choice. Tin cans, waste of money, absolute waste of money. Getting the thing to land, getting something that big to safely land and then position properly. And here's the thing you're not going to expand a tin can. Your settlement, if you start with a tin can, is not going to grow without another tin can coming from Earth. That's an expensive proposition because it's a one-way funnel of money out. There's no way to generate any kind of return on investment for that. Right. If we look at the second alternative that we ident identified in our first hour, and that is is inflatable habitats, and again, my example was those constructed by Bigelow Aerospace, um, those have are, are similar to the metal tin cans, but they still present the original problem in that they're only as big as they're big. They're only as big as you buy it. Hmm. And so you don't really have any way to expand that habitat if uh, 
if you should have more people arrive. Every person that you bring to the moon to grow your settlement has got to bring a habitat with them, and that's just that's that's untenable. It would be like sending the settlers across the the plains of uh, of America and saying, "Okay, you have to take your house with you." Huh. It's just not going to work. Right. You cannot send a group of four or six as a team and say, "Okay, you got to carry your whole habitat with you." So we have to we need to have a way in our habitat construction to have a seed that we plant that gives us the capability to start. If we look at history, when the pilgrims came across to uh, along the Mayflower, when the expeditions came across to establish Jamestown, when the expeditions left the eastern colonies in the 1850s and 60s to travel westward, they didn't carry everything they needed, albeit they had an atmosphere to work in, they had trees to harvest, and they had game to shoot, and we don't have those things on the surface of the moon, granted. But there are still lessons to be learned in this. If we scale back the approach, and instead of looking at trying to be able to do research, or mining, or harvesting of volatiles for rocket fuels, if instead of trying to do these industrial age things at the beginning, and we focus on survival, I actually think we might have a better chance at success. Hmm. We can carry a lot less materials. Okay. A lot less volatiles with us on the assumption that when we get there, we can use the principle of the biosphere to grow us a bigger unit. Grow you a bigger unit? Sure. Why not? Okay. Explain that one. Okay. First of all, let's accept that we're going to have to have a seed. That seed's going to have to be a startup tin can. In the same way that the pioneers crossed the American Plains in a Conestoga wagon, right. which was essentially their home, albeit cramped and tiny, we're going to have to send something similar, a temporary housing unit. Yeah. All right? That is a given. There's nothing we can do about that. So there's going to have to be some unit. And I, I would recommend something along the order of, of the Bigelow habitats, simply because... They're small. They could be landed relatively comfortably. All-inclusive. All-inclusive, yes. And it provides a, a substantial airlock already designed into the package. So there's not a lot of new design that needs to be done. So that gets us onto the surface of the moon. Now, the other thing that the that we're going to need to carry is we're going to have to have a, a second wagon, so to speak, a supply kit. But... What I'm going to propose for this habitat is not the typical supplies that we would assume that astronauts would take to the moon, such as uh, collection sample bags, such as telescopes, such as um, uh, equipment that's going to be related to either mining or um, uh, harvesting or anything like that of the lunar service, because the very first thing that we're going to have to do when we get there is we have to learn how to survive in our new homestead. Mm-hmm. We are not going to have time to mine. We're not going to have time to manufacture any any rocket fuel. We're not going to have time to manufacture any metals. We're not going to have... It's all about survival. It's all about survival. There's not going to be room for the equipment necessary to harvest anything off the surface of the moon when we get there with the first team. So that first team has to do something that plants a seed on the surface of the moon. And here's what I propose for that. 
they carry with them a second module in their transit. And that module has landed on the surface of the moon next to their habitat, or perhaps has landed first. And in that supply module is held, um, whether it be drills and, and explosives, or whether it be a couple of robots that they use for, for digging into the side of the crater, I propose that they dig into the side of the crater. Mm-hmm. Create a cavity big enough that would satisfy the 2,100 square foot space required to grow enough food. All of the ejecta, all of the, the, the debris that's going to come out of that cavity can be used around the landing site to everything from marking off uh, pathways to used, creating a, a pile of raw materials that could then be used as we begin looking at prospects of sintering the regolith and, and, and looking at the geology as it comes out of that thing. So there's a lot of stuff to learn about the moon's surface and, and its subsurface geology as well by digging into the, cra- into the crater wall first. Once we've got a reasonable space, a cavity, we simply seal it up. Now, I'm not suggesting that we spend the time to microwave our regolith into bricks. We're not going to have the power available to do that. Not going to be there on the first trip. Mm-hmm. Not going to be there on the second trip either. So we've got to be realistic in what we can expect the first team to do. Their sole purpose is to establish a habitat that can grow. And there's only one way on the surface of the moon to grow a habitat or to make that habitat bigger, and that's if you're underground. Once you establish an airspace, a sealed airspace underground, you can continue digging Mm -hmm. and make it bigger. You can't do that any other way. Well, after you have the habitat, you're, you're talking about making it bigger on the other... Uh, making it bigger underneath. You you going deeper into the side of the wall? Sure. Why not? I thought you had to uh, close that off on that side. You only have to close up the entrance to the habitat cave. Okay. Once you seal that up. Now, one of the things that's going to happen, this is something dust. a lot of people... Dust inside the habitat is going to be... Um, uh, workable. You can control that. Okay. You carry a tarp, tarp, tarpaulin curtain. That's true. You know, section you keep the off. dust. Yeah, you section it off with just a little curtain. Canvas tarp is a very simple thing, although it is heavier than, say, a uh, plastic tarp. So you've got all sorts of options when you start looking at it from that standpoint. Mm-hmm. It's not about actually solving the problem as much as it is creating uh, an infrastructure or at least a way of thinking about approaching these issues. I know that picture in the background. I've shown that to somebody before. Yeah, yeah that's online. So once once we have this cave established and we've sealed up the cave, now we're going to pressurize that cave. Now we begin moving everything that we've got, all of our supplies, all of our equipment, into that cave habitat. And, of course, we always hear people, I don't want to live in a cave. <laughs> yeah, I can equate with that. Yeah. At the same time, this cave could be quite comfortable. Now, the second thing is, we already talked in the first hour that that the very first priority is getting it to hold air. There are going to be all sorts of minor problems we're going to run into. For example, once you cut the the cave opening and you get past the geological issues of stability of the surface, stability of the roof, uh, 
and resolve those issues. Then you've got to look at the percolation of any air that you put inside that habitat. You're going to lose some of that air to the percolation into the into the rock and the soil around you through fissures that appear in the cave walls and the cave ceiling. So you're going to lose some air to begin with. So you're not going to habit, inhabit that cave until you've got a stable atmosphere, until you've pumped enough air into it that's going to hold a stable amount steady so that you can pressurize to the desired point. That being said, once you've moved in, you asked a question a few moments ago about how do you grow your habitat. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've learned on this earth is, is that growing happens through biology. And if we take advantage of the biological tools and other biological creatures around us, we can find we can show how to grow a habitat to produce more than what we put in. And we start by our construction materials. Okay. To do that, there's a wonderful material that grows very rapidly that is as strong as steel under certain conditions, but that's biological in nature. Mm-hmm. Asia's, Asia has been using this material for centuries, and it's bamboo. <laughs> it grows very, very fast. Yeah. It can be used for supports. It can be used for flooring. It can be used, you can even take the fibers and use them for clothing. Yeah, it's become a very popular flooring for a lot of upgrade homes. Yeah, absolutely. It's great in walls. It's also great as a food source. Bamboo sprouts are considered a delicacy. Well, I know that um, panda bears love it. There you go. So the one beauty of this is, is the bamboo represents one aspect where you can tap into the biological world and have something that gives you food. It can help filter your air because it is a photosynthetic green plant. And thirdly, it can provide you your construction materials. The one downside to bamboo, and there's always a price to pay for everything, mm-hmm. um, is that your usual cure time is three years in the open sun. Now, our habitat is going to have three years. And right. there are already people who have shown that there are techniques that can cure the bamboo to a workable point in a matter of, of hours or days. Wow. That's fast. It's fast. I, again, everything has a price. Wouldn't that make it less uh, sturdy? It does. But here's the thing. On the moon's surface, we don't need something as strong as steel inside our cave. We only need something that can support a, uh, a, a hundred, couple hundred pounds. Mm. I mean, think about it. A person who weighs, like myself, close to 200 pounds on Earth is only going to weigh one-sixth of that on the surface of the moon. So one-sixth of... Okay, do the math for me. One-sixth of 200 is what? One-sixth of 200. One-sixth of 200. Six into 200 is... 33 point infinity. Okay, so 33 pounds. 34 pounds, roughly. Which is going to be kind of great. (laughs) Uh, So... Right. I would love to weigh that. I'm sure there are a lot of people that would love to to see that weight come down. So the benefit is is that the construction materials that we use on the moon do not have to be as strong inside the cave as they would otherwise to support regolith, to support habitat components, to support launch facilities, 
they would have to be much heavier out in the open space of the moon's surface. But inside our habitat, we don't need structural steel. The other interesting thing is, is the bamboo can also be used to carry water. Yes, because it's hollow. Because it, it can be made hollow fairly easily. Now, the next thing is, is so that so that gets us our construction materials, and these can be grown if in in the surface of inside the habitat. Some of these bamboo varieties can grow 15 to 20 feet tall, and that's a that's an astounding length of material that can probably be grown in a matter of of less than than six months. Mm-hmm. So that gives us a lot of of material to use. The next thing that we really need to look at, because I, I mentioned that because it is a green leafy, it has green leafy components to the plant, that talks about recycling our air, using the carbon dioxide. We need to also have other plants using the photosynthetic properties. Now, most of the NASA engineers and a lot of the space environment engineers talk about algae as a real great thing to do this, and I, and I agree, there should be an algae algae tank somewhere to process a lot of the air going through by funneling some of that air through or at least the carbon dioxide that we're going to be producing just from living and breathing, much less any other processes that might be going on. So that air needs to be pumped through this algae. But there, you're not going to have a tank big enough, even in that 2,100 square foot space, that's going to process all of the carbon dioxide that the, that the people are going to produce. So let's let's throw in a couple of that's other things. That's a lot things. of hot air. That's a lot of hot air. And you know, that's that's another point that that's gonna be important. Mm. You've got to do something about all that heat. Well, yeah. I mean you, get, you need fresh air really. There ain't no fresh air on the moon. That's so you gotta produce it. So we've gotta produce it. So let's and, talk about that. You know, the the easiest way to do that is you add plants. And lots of them. But here's the thing. You've got to have plants that have enough leaves to be able to do the uh, the respiration and handle the conversion and have the um, surface area to process that much air. That's for sure. And so that's going to mean a lot of things. So we're going to have to look at some rather different ways of farming. Hydroponics alone isn't going to do it, and especially not the hydroponics of the tech industry. Because you've got to have specialized chemicals, you've got to have computers to manage the 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 mixtures, you've got to have all sorts of stuff to manage how those chemicals are delivered to those plants. You gotta have power to you've got to have energy yeah, to power the to pumps. The, the good old days when you, you stuck plants in your backyard and grew them and we don't have them. dirt on the moon. We oh. don't have dirt with any kind of nutrition in it for plants. Right. Doesn't exist on the moon. Right. So we were talked about, you know, the worms and the worm bed and you have to take the worms with the You gotta take something to process waste, but you're gonna take time to process your biomass waste from the habitat into dirt and that's gonna take several months. Well, I would think you're gonna have to take some dirt with you. Nah. <laughs> you start out with the hydroponic longer. plants. Once you've got your hydroponic plants, then you start integrating your next part of the biological system, and that is fish. Okay. Now, tilapia are a wonderful fish. They don't mind being a little crowded, just like us humans. We love being well, together. I don't think we like being crowded. We just, I know it doesn't seem like 
The tilapia are, are one variety of fish, and there are several that could, that could go. That once established with fingerlings, they grow very, very quickly within six to nine months. You can get uh, where you can have one fish provides a fillet for a person that's enough, plus adding vegetables and maybe some potatoes, you get a good-sized meal. So tilapia then adds the other half of this. Tilapia can provide through their daily process of filling the water with all their waste, and you pump that water to the plants, you're now solving that whole nutrient problem because the plants will use whatever nutrients are in the water from the fish. We now have almost a complete cycle. Okay. Now we're going to need uh, another thing in this habitat that's going to be able to process uh, solid waste and, of course, human liquid wastes. There you go. Now, for those, we're going to need some good old-fashioned farm tools called a composting toilet, for one, which where we take dried biomass from, from our kitchen waste, we dry it out, and when we use the toilet for a number two, we drop a little bit of that dried biomass in there. And that will draw out the moisture and stop the smells. It'll also help move the decaying process along as well. Now, so that gets us our food. It gets us our air. Now we need to be able to process our water. Now, we already have relatively inexpensive units that can take water and get us down to a filtered point. And one of the things that I'm hoping the listener is beginning to appreciate is is that a lot of what I'm proposing is not high-tech. A lot of this is low-tech. It's stuff that the pioneers worked on a couple of centuries ago. Right. I mean, a composting to- toilet is nothing more than, in our case, a bucket with some straw in it. In the case of a pioneer, it was a hole in the ground and you drop straw in it. It hasn't really changed all that much except for the plastic we put it in. The processes are essentially the same. If we don't have to haul a lot of technology, if we don't have to spend time monitoring computers for the exact mix of the chemicals, we're going to have more time to develop this biological regenerative habitat than we will if we're stuck in a tin can or in an inflatable environment where we're constantly watching for all of the other problems that go with that system. Hmm. So let's go just a little bit further with this idea of a habitat. So far, I've pretty much ruled out a tin can unless it's being used for the seed unit to get us started, just something to live in until we get the cave habitat built. But let's talk about some differences here as well. In the, in the typical space community idea where you drop several tin cans down on the surface of the moon and then you have robots bury them, you have a timetable there where you're dealing with potentially several months before those robots are going to be able to bury that tin can. Your investment is sitting there on the surface of the moon. And I remember a book by Dr. what was his name? used to be a NASA scientist, Binder, I want to say, where he talked about one of these first habitats being built. And the single question that he ran up 
against is, is if you have robots build something on the surface of the moon, however many hundreds of thousands of miles away, with no humans to do any kind of inspection or quality check, are you willing to trust your life to the assembly capabilities of these robots who are working in an extremely dusty environment, who are working in an environment that is has no air, who don't know what air is, who don't know how to put their finger up in the air and, and feel the breeze, who don't know when something is sealed or not unless there's no pressure. There's no flexibility to robots designed to do these things. Okay. So there are some serious concerns that many people, including Dr. Binder, had with regard to robotically constructed habitats on the surface of the moon, or Mars for that matter. There are potential problems that we cannot foresee. But if you put a person there, you have the capability of addressing some of those. If we build a habitat by cutting into the side of the crater, even if we have to deal with um, the potential regolith on the inside of a crater wall, which I seriously doubt is going to be that challenging of an issue, once you start moving into the geological locations underneath the soil, your potential for slides is already passed. You, you've done all the sliding you're going to do. There's not going to be that much right at that point. Your biggest concern is going to be the fractures, the fissures that are going to develop in the, in the course of the process of digging into this cave area. But once done and once established... Now you've got a reasonable habitat that can grow. You know, we talked earlier in the first half of the program today about the idea that the ISS throws a lot of materials away. Well, I don't know that a lot of people understand that there's you've got a lot of stuff that goes into that trash uh, trash bin that gets tossed back into the atmosphere to burn up, other than just the digital equipment, computers, or tools, or toys, or whatever. There's biomass, there's human waste, there's all sorts of stuff that goes into that ship that gets pushed back into the atmosphere. That human waste, that biomass, air that gets caught into little air bubbles in the plastic bags that they use to haul stuff, all of that could be used by our lunar component if they could get their hands on that to recycle it. And that's the next part of any kind of a habitat on the moon. You're going to have to have additional biomass. You're going to have to have additional resources come into this habitat. Why should it always be the Earth that provides that? If the Earth is already sending up stuff to the ISS once every couple of, couple of weeks via Progress or ATV, and they're just throwing it down into the incinerator that is the atmosphere right now, why why don't we capture that? It seems to me it would be a lot less effort to send that over to the moon. As, well, yeah. And and here's something to think about. Couldn't that be one of the jobs of some people who are on the moon? Absolutely. That I mean, think like about the... built-in industry. Exactly. That could be the very first industry of the, of the, moon, uh, the moon team. Is to recycle the materials that are discarded 
by the ISS. Just hanging around. Absolutely. Or that they're just going to throw away into the atmosphere and incinerate. Right. That's, you've got biomass. You've got metals. Yeah. You've got expensive metals. Yeah, some of it could be re Some of it reused. could be reworked. Or some of it could be used in the construction or as raw materials for construction of other things that would be used on the lunar habitat. Exactly. There's no reason to throw that stuff away. What is waste on the ISS or ultimately coming up will be waste on the Big Glow Station is an industry for the for the lunar surface. Yeah. Where there's hotels you got waste. Where there's hotels you got waste. The more people that visit that hotel, the more waste you got. That's right. Um so, you know, perhaps one of the, the, the largest things that I'm talking about is is that in the space community today, it is assumed that our first industries on the moon are going to be mining. They might be um, harvesting volatiles. They might be um, creating power that could be beamed either back to Earth or to the ISS. Mm-hmm. Um but every one of these three major categories of, of first crops of the moon requires a huge investment in infrastructure, a huge investment in design and technology that in, in the engine, in, in the space establishment, typically takes 10 to 20 years before you have something. Hmm. Well, you know, the thing is that some of that's going to have to happen when they get there. They can figure out, you know, how to make that work. Absolutely. But here's another thought to consider. Um, they, NASA really did a whole lot of research trying to anticipate what it would be like to work on the surface of the moon. And when we saw the Apollo 11 and um, and the other Apollo teams on the surface of the moon, they struggled with being able to move across the surface in their spacesuits. You couldn't walk. The suits just simply were too stiff. Right. Walking was a challenge. It was physically rigorous. In addition, running was next to impossible. <laughs> and in, in, in the very in, in the Apollo the first Apollo eleven landing, they discovered very quickly that hopping was about the only way to do that. Yeah. But now you got a new problem. Yeah. Once you get started hopping, yeah. it's tough to stop. Yeah, and, and what if you hop too high? <laughs> well, then you just go farther. Yeah. I mean, you're still going to be pulled back to the to the surface of the moon. But yeah. here are some things to think about. In our habitat... That like fun to me. Oh, I think it would be fun. Except I remember that one scene where he was just trying to stand up and just struggling to get his feet underneath him. Yeah, um, keep him on I'm yeah. sure that must have been really annoying to him and, and frustrating. But here's here's some things to think about. You know, we talked about the fact that our construction materials don't necessarily need to support the kind of weights that we do here on Earth, in our inside our habitat. It's also true to remember that the moon is going to represent, at least for the short term, the ability to have humans work like ants, where we can move huge objects that we could never have hoped to move on Earth. Well, yeah. I mean, here's here's the thought to think about. If if I at two hundred pounds am only going to weigh thirty three pounds on the moon's surface, a one ton car is only going to weigh what thirty three hundred three hundred and thirty pounds. 
Some guys could pick that up. Some guys could actually pick that up and move it around. And so the the idea of, I mean, here's something to think about. Um, uh, uh, Let's see, a 55-gallon drum of water, I think it is, weighs on the order of 400 pounds. You know, uh, a couple of people could pick that up with relative ease on the surface of the moon. It's only going to weigh a little over, uh, what, about 45 pounds? No, 60, it'd be about 60 pounds. So even one man could haul a barrel of water around without sure. difficulty. Right. So there are whole ways of working on the surface of the moon that are going to change whether we're inside the habitat or whether we're outside. And if they're using the bulky spacesuits that we have today or similar, then we're going to have to work out new ways to work, not only on the surface, but within the habitat as they're going to and from the habitat. So you're going to have a whole slew of issues. And this comes to, to one of the, the big challenges that I think faces the space industry. Whether you put tin cans on there and you bury them out in the in the mare, or whether you find uh, whether you drop a, a group of inflatables, mm-hmm. or whether you go to the direction I suggest in a homestead and you drop um, a temporary unit as an inflatable and you dig into the side of the crater, you dig underground, or you take it, or here, here you go, you take advantage of, of a, um, a lava tube that may already exist. And you go down and you build a habit a inside there. Talk about that, they, yeah. they are. They, they, they've actually discovered a collapsed section of a lava tube on the on the surface of the moon. And so, there is a great deal of of potential for that type of a a place. But you've still got to build your habitat. You've still got to be able to pressurize it, and you've still got to be able to trust it over the long term. And most importantly, that we don't hear people talking about how do you grow that homestead? How do you grow that habitat? into something larger that can handle the influx of more and more people. If you're in Earth orbit and you want to add more people, you have to make it bigger. You have to physically launch another unit. Definitely. On the surface of the moon, if we go underground, now we can grow that thing using tunnels. And here's here's something to consider. We don't have to have heavy mechanical diggers at first. There are techniques that we can put in place that don't require huge, massive investments in funds to get equipment there that can dig huge tunnels in a matter of minutes. And there are lower-tech solutions to get us to that position. One of the things to keep in mind is what I'm proposing is a homestead, right. not a base. Right. And in one of the readings I was looking and preparing for this discussion today, I noticed that when you look at a lot of the documentation and a lot of the discussion about putting uh, people on the surface of the moon, they talk about, uh, in most cases, a base. And the assumptions that go with the idea of a base is is that when you send somebody to a base, that base, those personnel, they're going to rotate home. Yeah. And that's going to require literally a doubling of all your expenses. Because now you have to carry those people, plus air, plus food, plus water, from the moon to Earth to get those people home. You're going to have to have the same infrastructure coming back that you sent out. And from a homesteading standpoint, 
You don't need any of that. Everybody that goes, goes one way, at least for the first few years, until you have a an established homestead, town, whatever you want to call it. Do you think that's going to be your biggest contenders or people who say, but what about bringing people back? You know, staying on the moon, I mean, that seems preposterous to some. Maybe, but it comes from the assumptions that NASA has beat into our heads. President Kennedy originally said in his declaration that we would send to put a man on the moon and bring him home safely. And if we look at the Apollo program, we look at the shuttle program, the Mercury, and the Gemini programs, they were all bound on that same principle of sending an astronaut to that location and bringing them home safely. And herein lies the problem. Nowhere in the process of settlement does the idea of sending somebody there and bringing them home come into play. When the pilgrims came to this country, they never intended to go back. That's true. Their eyes were looking forward and never back. That's definitely true. When the people went to Jamestown from England, they also knew they were not going back. When the settlers, the homesteaders in the 1850s and 60s in this country who set out to claim their plot of land for their homestead, never looked back. If we are going to do the same thing, we have to do the same idea. We have to assume we're not coming back. And there are a whole host of questions and answers that go into that assumption that we're not coming back. One of those questions that comes into play is the idea that why do we have to send astronauts? Right, which is why we got into the robotics. Right. But I'm I'm adding a third option here. Why do we have to, why should we have to send only one of two choices, either astronauts or robots? Why don't we send people who are committed to surviving. The whole point of the astronaut corps is to pilot ships to their destination and bring them home in the same way that the pilot of an airliner takes the ship to its target destination and then brings that plane home. The same way that the captain of a sailing ship goes to the destination and then comes home. It's a job. Settling space, settling the moon, settling Mars, this is not a job. This is a life. This is a kind of a, this is a commitment that while I admire the efforts of our astronauts, I admire their their strength, their commitment, their their drive to make their it happen, their courage to get us to this point to open the frontier in the same way that I admire Lewis and Clark who mapped out the Northwest Territory and then came home 
they were our pathfinders. But once they came home and they gave us that information, it was our homesteaders who then went out and turned it into a home. Right. It was not government employees. It was not engineers. It was not railroad tycoons who carved out that frontier. It was the homesteaders, right, the right. farmers, the ranchers, the, the people who got out there and solved the day-to-day problems of survival on the frontier. Yeah, railroad wouldn't, wouldn't build anything unless there were people out there already. They had to have something kind there. Of, kind of like freeways. Exactly. And, there, and there's no, there, there really is no economic value to build a transportation railway or, or or shipping shipping way between the earth and the moon unless you've got something there that either people want to go to mm-hmm. and homesteaders would love to go there or you've got some economic value on the moon that you can bring back and the reality is as I, as I put a blog up and the blog entry no I mentioned somewhere that here's something to consider why on earth would I want to spend money to mine something on earth and then pay to lift it out of the gravity well of the moon and then have to pay additionally for the three-day trip to Earth orbit and then pay for all of the fuel necessary to get that piece of whatever it is I'm shipping down to Earth's surface. The quantities likely to be delivered to the Earth's surface, just with the technology we have today, the quantities that are deliverable to the Earth's surface are so small as to be prohibitively if, uh, expensive to anybody who will want to buy it. Right. But then again, I, I think often how many more people can possibly go up into uh, Virgin Galactic's uh, or, you know, buy into that? Very are, few. Very few. I mean, it costs too much to do that. So how how many more people can they possibly do for space uh, tourism? We we do have the there there is the premise that in the American economy there are um, a large group of millionaires made almost every week. So the market I was one of those. <laughs> yeah, I do too. <laughs> but but here's the thing: the economy is growing slowly, but it is growing, and there are a lot of opportunities for people to gain the income levels that would allow them to take a trip on Virgin Galactic or X-Corps or um, Blue Origin when they get to operation. But most of these trips that these companies are going to be making are going to be more for the science or business anyway. The economics just aren't there for the large volume of, of travelers yet. We'll get there someday. But these tourists are going to want, as you said before, a destination. Right. Bigelow when they get their private station up, we'll have a destination at least for business, which is going to be a big step. Mm-hmm. And that's going to make a big difference. But the Bigelow station offers us a second waypoint between the surface of the Earth and the Moon, which is a big thing. With that second waypoint, we now have the ability of two different trading posts to get us to the Moon. The habitats that we build or take with us will provide us a long-term strategy. But those habitats have to be designed to grow. 
and neither the tin can habitat of NASA's design nor the Bigelow habitat can grow with any regular frequency without a huge level of financial investment. The moon offers us, and Mars, if we can develop the techniques on the moon, we can transfer those techniques to Mars. We can dig underground and find ways to add light, to add power, to prepare for the radiation exposure, to deal with all of the challenges that we face. The idea of trying to construct habitats on Earth and ship them to the moon or ship them to Mars is patently, in my mind, economically irresponsible. One Conestoga wagon to get us started and we carry the tools to build us a habitat there makes sense. Economically, biologically, we're not going to build something that's got 20 meters squared of space. We are running down. I'm running out of time. We're down in our last five minutes. If anybody has any comments or questions, you're running out of time. Just need to get it in here. Uh, You can text me or you can call in really fast to 714-242-5145. Otherwise, um, we are going to run run down it's out of time here, but we're going to say, uh, let everyone know that uh, Donald has a personal website, and his personal website with a lot of this information uh, on space and projects are at uh, donaldjocks.com, that's J-A-C-Q-U-E-S.com. And uh, you have some great stuff in there, including some of his writings and his computers and robotics. He even has a handy duck section on here, So, uh, being the handyman that he is. Um, again, he's a fiction author as well as a nonfiction author. And his home setting space, the 12 steps to a permanent lunar settlement, is also on sale on the publisher website as well as Amazon.com. And that's azpublishingservices.com. That's az, like in Arizona, publishingservices.com. And PDF version of that is only $1.59, so get your copies now, guys. So with that, we're going to, just, we're going to wrap it up here. Don, is there anything you'd like to add? I mean, I know we need to talk maybe next time about... Um, some other things that we can talk about. Obviously, one thing that came to mind during the conversation was um, was uh, uh, what they'd be wearing on space. We're talking about how bulky some of those uh, spacesuits were and the fact that they would need something lighter in order to be able to get around space. I know they come out with some lighter material, so we can talk about that perhaps next time. Absolutely. Um, I love the wonderful visions of space that we've been given by the authors and artists' renderings over the last 10, 20 years. And many of them, including the big Brinnell spheres and the the Tauruses that show us living with hundreds of thousands of people in space or in habitats out there, the only problem that we face is, is that we have yet to solve the basic requirements of life. 
Creating the first homestead is our challenge. And until we approach it like a homestead, we're going to be forever depending on technology to solve problems that won't last. We must get to the homestead point where we can move people out en masse into space, to the moon, to Mars, to the asteroids, to begin building the economies, to begin building the societies that are going to make us a space-born society. It won't be easy, but it's going to be a wonderful ride. Thank you, Patty, for your time. Well, thank you, Don. And we will be back again in a week or so talking more about some other subjects. Uh, again, all about homesteading space, which is an exciting project. Uh, this is Patty Holstrand, and we were live on KWAD Radio. And have a great weekend. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.